0: Chapter 44 of Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 2, by Arthur L. Hayward An account of the horrid murder of Mr. Whittington Darby, committed in his chambers in the temple on the 11th of April, 1727, for which one Henry Fisher was apprehended and committed to Newgate, from whence he escaped. The deceased Mr. Darby was a young gentleman who made an extraordinary good appearance in the world. He generally wore fine rings, rich snuff-boxes, and an extraordinary gold watch about him. These things possibly tempted a needy person of his acquaintance to be guilty of that barbarous murder which was committed upon him. He lived in the chambers belonging to Sir George Cook's office in the temple his servant lived in another place and went home every night. It happened the night before, or rather in that wherein he was murdered, that Mr. Darby had a good deal of company with him, who, supping late, they did not go away until eleven o'clock, when Mr. Darby's servant also retired to his lodgings. The next morning, being Tuesday, about nine o'clock, Mr. Darby was found dead in the said office, his skull penetrated with a pistol ball, his ear and hand cut, his rings, watch and other valuables taken away, besides his escritoire broken open and his money and linen taken from thence. The next day the coroner's inquest sat thereon, but being able to make no discovery of the murder, they thought fit to adjourn die as soon as the coroner had made an order for the interment of his corpse, which was done accordingly in a vault in the church of St. Andrew's Holborn. Some time passed before any light was got into this affair. At length Mr. Moody, who had been upon the coroner's inquest who had sat on the body of Mr. Darby, received information that one fisher, Who had been in very bad circumstances and as an acquaintance had been relieved under him by the deceased mr darby was all on a sudden since the committing of that murder observed to have a great deal of money he had paid some debts which had been troublesome to him and was observed to have some valuable things about him which had never been seen before these circumstances appearing altogether very suspicious Mr. Moody acquainted Mr. Yorke with it, who had been very assiduous in taking all measures possible for the discover of this horrid assassination. He falling readily into Mr. Moody's opinion, they agreed together that the likeliest method to find out the truth was to go to Mr. Willoughby, who was Fisher's landlord and known to be a very honest man. Accordingly they went to him in a tavern in Southampton Street, where they understood he was, and falling into discourse about Mr. Darby's murder, they insinuated to him the suspicions they had of his lodger. Returning to his house, Fisher being away, Mr. Willoughby went to his room and broke open a box, and found in it the top and bottom of a snuff-box, a wizard-mask, And a pair of laced ruffles. The remains of the snuff box Mr. York knew to have belonged to the deceased, and had reason to suspect the ruffles also to have been his. So that it was immediately agreed to go before the Honorable Sir William Thompson in order to procure a warrant. Footnote Sir William Thompson, sixteen seventy eight to seventeen thirty nine was recorder of london in seventeen fifteen solicitor-general two years later and in seventeen twenty nine became baron of the exchequer End of footnote. there they made an affidavit of the several circumstances attending their discovery and sir william upon the examination also of a lady who produced a piece of lace before she had seen the ruffle and declared that if it were mr darby's it must tally therewith which on a comparison it did exactly granted a warrant it appeared also at the same time upon the oath of mr willoughby that the day mr darby was murdered fisher borrowed half a crown of him to pay his washerwoman and was in the utmost necessity for money A woman swore that a person very like Fisher was hovering about Mr. Darby's chambers the night the murder was committed, and it was proved by the oath of another person that Fisher came not to his lodgings till two o'clock on Tuesday morning, on which Mr. Darby was murdered. About eight o'clock a porter came and informed Mr. Fisher of Mr. Darby's being murdered, at which he showed little concern and locked himself up for some hours. Things being thus over at Sir William Thompson's, Mr. Willoughby, Mr. York, and Mr. Moody returned to Fisher's lodgings. About two o'clock in the morning he came in, and they seized him, having a constable and proper assistance for that purpose. On Sunday noon he was carried before Sir William Thompson in order to be examined, where he said— that about the latter end of the week in which Mr. Darby was murdered, as he was passing through Lincoln's Inn fields about four in the afternoon, he took up under the wall of Lincoln's Inn gardens, a white paper parcel in which were contained several things of great value belonging to the deceased. Some of the diamonds he acknowledged he sold to a jeweler in Paternoster Row for ten guineas, The watch he pawned for nine guineas to a person at a brazier's in Bond Street, and sold the gold chain and swivels to a person in Lombard Street. He absolutely denied all knowledge of the murder, and said that at the time it happened he was at a billiard table in Duke Street by St. James's. When taken, there was found upon him two of Mr. Darby's rings with the stones taken out, wrapped up in a paper, with his seal the arms of which were taken out and in these circumstances he was committed to newgate soon after this the coroner granted his warrant and an order being thereupon obtained from the commons mr darby's body was taken up and in the presence of several persons his head opened by an eminent surgeon who found a large lacerated wound near the left ear the temporal bone on that side being very much fractured "'several pieces of which stuck in the brain on the same side. "'He found likewise the temporal bone on the other side, "'exactly opposite, broken. "'The pieces thereof were not removed from their places, "'but easily removed upon his attempting to take them away. "'He took out the brain, "'and the bullet dropped upon the pillow "'which lay upon the ground under his head.' it appeared upon comparing the said bullet taken out of the head with some other bullets found in custody of henry fisher at that time in newgate on suspicion of the murder that it seemed to have been cast in the same mould and when weighing it with one of these bullets it was very little lighter and it fitted the bore of one of the pistols which was found in fisher's custody even that pistol which by some signs were looked on to have been discharged though afterwards loaded again. This Fisher was the son of a very eminent clothier in the west of England, who had sent him to London, and put him out clerk to an attorney, and had done everything in his power which he was able, and which was reasonable for him to do. But he, being extravagant, lived far beyond the rate which was consistent with the supplies he received from his father, so that when pressed by his necessities, He had often applied to Mr. Darby for relief. When in Newgate, he affected a most unreasonable gaiety and unconcernedness in his behaviour, although the circumstances were so strong against him as occasioned it to prevail as the general opinion that he would be convicted. However, he and the famous Roger Johnson took the advantage of the workmen labouring on the cells which were then building. And by breaking a hole through a place done up only with lath and plaster, they got down one of the workmen's ladders, and so made their escape. Johnson was afterwards retaken and tried for breaking prison, but alleging it was done by Fisher, he was acquitted, and this Henry Fisher, the supposed murderer of mr Darby, was never heard of since. End of chapter forty four. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa.